Quick question. Can your supervisors communicate, solve conflicts, lead with confidence? Anyone promoted from operations to management will tell you that the soft skills are the hard skills. That's why we created a program for technically minded folks to learn the right tools for today's leadership challenges. Tools like reading employee emotions, setting workplace goals, and communicating with a diverse workforce. Hungry for more? Get the details at shiftworkplace.co slash supervisory leadership training. That's shiftworkplace.co slash supervisory leadership training. Hello, Culture and Leadership Connections podcast listeners. I am very excited to interview today Dr. Cornelia Nell Wyman, who works for the First Nations Health Authority in British Columbia in the office of the Chief Medical Officer as the Acting Deputy Chief Medical Officer. She is Anishinaabe from Little Grand Rapids First Nation, Manitoba, and lives, works, and plays on the unceded territory of the Coast Salish peoples. She is the first female Indigenous psychiatrist in Canada and the president of the Indigenous Physicians Association of Canada since 2016. She has served for 20 years with active clinical experience working with Indigenous people in both rural, reserve, and urban settings. And her previous activities include co-directing an Indigenous health research program in the Dalla School of Public Health at the University of Toronto and the National Network for Indigenous Mental Health Research, being Deputy Chair of Health Canada's Research Ethics Board and serving on CIHR's Governing Council. She is really an illustrious person. I am so honored, Dr. Wyman, that you are here on our podcast today. And I'd like to just welcome you. Thanks, Marie. Thanks for having me. I'd also like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional lands referred to as Treaty 6 territory and that the city of Edmonton, where I'm recording this podcast, and all the people here are beneficiaries of this peace and friendship treaty. Edmonton is and has been the home to a diverse range of Indigenous nations and peoples, including the Cree, Blackfoot, Métis, Dakota Sioux, Iroquois, Dene, Soto, Anishinaabe, Sutina, Inuit, and others. So with that, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast. And please fill us in on a little bit more about who you are. Great. Thanks, Marie. So I think one of the most important parts that people probably could know about me is that I identify as a 60 scoop survivor. So I was in the late 1960s, I was taken from my family and adopted into a non-native home. I was actually raised by a Dutch couple in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And being adopted and experiencing the, you know, the historical experience of the 60s scoop has really, I think, been a big part of my journey as an Indigenous woman and has played into how I am a leader, but how I bring my experience to the work that I do do. In terms of what I'm doing right now, about three and a half years ago, I, I moved from Ontario to British Columbia and I took a role in public health Uh, gave up my clinical practice in psychiatry. And then, you know, of course, a year and a half ago, the pandemic hit. So I've been pretty busy over the last year and a half, uh, learning a lot, but kind of combining all of my past experiences clinically in research, teaching and administration, uh, bringing all those skills forward into the work that we're doing here in British Columbia for First Nations people. That's great. I I actually have questions about both of those 
The first one is about the 60 scoop. I think for people who may not be familiar with it, we did have the consistent removal of children from their parents and put into residential schools. But after most of the residential schools were closed, then what happened was children were still removed from their parents immediately in all sorts of strange ways and put into foster care or adopted out. And that is usually referred to as the 60s scoop, but I'm sure I've missed something in that. I'm just wondering, would you like to explain that a little bit more to our listeners? That's actually a really uh, good capture of what happened. And I think the important thing to add was the 60s scoop happened because the residential schools started to close and fell into disfavor. And it was another way in which First Nations and Indigenous people could be assimilated into the you know, general population. Uh, most of us who identify as 60 Scoop survivors you know, were adopted into non-Indigenous homes. Uh, we no longer spoke our language. We were not exposed in, in many cases to our ceremonies or culture. So that was another attempt to assimilate us. And, you know, I think the other important thing for listeners to know is that, you know, really the 60s scoop has continued. It wasn't an event just confined to the 1960s. In fact, it's kind of gone on as the decades have. So one of the things I think that's really important is that finally, you know, we received an apology just the same way that the residential school survivors did and received a settlement, a class action settlement because of our losses. I have a good friend who, her name is Bernadette Itai, and she's a 60 scoop survivor as well. She created the Creating Hope Society to help people to get past the trauma. And the reason she did that is because there were 11 people from her reserve that were taken at the same time as she was from their parents and put into foster care. And of those 11, she's the only one who hasn't committed suicide. Yeah. So when people say, oh, what could be so bad about, you know, being taken away from one family and put into another? Well, it's horrible to be taken away from your family and your community and even more horrible to be put into a situation where you feel so disparaged that you don't want to stay alive. And so you don't have to answer this question, but I'm curious as to what your experience was like how have you moved past whatever you've experienced and what's your resiliency story, I think is what I'm asking. Of course, yeah. you don't have to answer that if, if that is personal. Yeah, no, I can give you an answer because it's taken me, you know, my whole life to kind of make sense of it and to come to some sort of peace about it. I think for me, being adopted with that layer of the assimilation had made it really challenging as an adolescent to sort of, you know, figure out my identity and who I was and who did I belong to and things like that. I grew up in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which, you know, has been in the news a lot. About, constantly, you know, constantly, yeah. About Indigenous people who live there experiencing racism, and, and my experience was no different. So one of the things that I came to realize is, I think as an adopted person, you always are looking for that sense of home. And it's not that I didn't have a home with my adoptive family, but to me, in terms Internally, it didn't feel like homes. You know, I have felt on my own for most of my life. But what I've realized is, you know, when I was in school, for example, those communities where I went to school and learned and trained became my homes. And then I worked for eight years on a reserve community um, and became a part of that community and felt in some ways that I was adopted 
by that community. And then I lived for 14 years in downtown Toronto, which has a very vibrant urban Indigenous community. And, you know, now I live here in British Columbia. And one of the joys of working at First Nations Health Authority is that we have all been adopted into the wolf clan of the Tsleil-Waututh Nation. And so for me, my understanding now is, I guess, you know, I've come to terms that maybe it's my journey that I will just continue to be kind of sequentially adopted by these different communities. But in some ways, I have come home because now I work for a First Nations organization and I live in Coast Salish territory and I'm learning all the time. And and that's how I've sort of reconciled it within myself. Hmm, I love that, that image of coming home. And the idea that home, it's wherever you're part of a community and that community takes you in. And then you have mentioned a couple of times that you've been learning a lot from being in British Columbia and from the experience of working with the First Nations Health Authority there and different communities that you're involved with. So maybe before I go to my usual questions, what's one thing that stood out that you've learned that's been significant for you? Well, I think probably the most significant thing is just how our work is embedded in culture and ceremony here. You know, I mentioned at the top that I've been very busy during the pandemic. And of course, that's true. But I think if I look back on every single day this week, there's been at least one or two meetings in my day where we have started with either a song or drumming. Um, Certainly an elder's been present um, at every meeting and starts us off in a good way and closes us in a good way. And, you know, that wasn't my typical experience when I was working in a hospital, for example, right? No, no, I'm sure. (laughs) That would be good, though. That'd be an awesome way to start the day in the hospital. It would be. And and even as an organization, every Monday, we used to gather in person at the office and uh, sing um, the Coast Salish anthem together before we started our week so that everyone started off in a good way. Uh, but now we do it virtually, of course. But that's just like a, a difference for me that I think it's healing at the same time as it is kind of, you know, the way in which we conduct our work here. Because you're starting the day with the spirit. Mm-hmm. And the connection to each other through spirit and all of creation and reminding yourself that you're a part of that. And I think that in a westernized civilization where things are more important than people and connections and spirit in most people's lives, they've lost that and they're hungering for it and they don't realize it. And when they experience it, they feel like they've come home. Yeah. So I worked in community the first eight years when I was out in practice, but I've mostly worked in urban settings for non-Indigenous organizations, but working with Indigenous people. So I just haven't had that same exposure, that same acknowledgement, you know, even in our organization, you know, part of our performance evaluations is is what are we doing in terms of our wellness, including our spiritual wellness? And, you know, again, that's very atypical from, you know, what I've experienced in the past. So all of it, I think, is, you know, not just to do our work on behalf of BC First Nations, but ensure that we are as well as we can be, each of us in doing that work. That is so beautiful. That's the way work should be. That's the spirit of work. Yeah. So I'm going to ask you about your childhood. Uh, So I'm sure you've had some incidents in your childhood and your adolescence that have marked you and that are in your memory as things that helped you to become the person that you are today. They would have developed your sense of leadership, your sense of culture, 
and your sense of who you are as a person. So can you think of any that you could recount to the listeners that were important experiences in your childhood or adolescence? Yeah. One of the ones that I can remember the most was being in about grade one or grade two. And I went to elementary school that had about almost a 50-50 split between Indigenous uh, children and non-Indigenous children from the Fort William Reserve were bused to our school. And so I didn't think about it at the time as much because my parents, you know, who adopted me sort of were trying to raise me in a different culture, in the Dutch culture. And I remember sitting down, we had to write a little story about, um, oh, it was our birth announcement. We had to write out our birth announcement. Like, you know, my name is Nell Wyman and I was born at this hospital and I weighed this many pounds. And, you know, I sat down with my paper in front of me at my desk and I realized like as an adopted kid, I don't have that information. I don't know what time of the day I was born. I don't know how much I weighed. I don't know how, like if I was premature or not, I have none of that information. And so I just sat there staring at this blank page. And I think I was like in grade one and I started to cry because I felt helpless. I, you know, everyone else is scribbling madly away. And, and the teacher came up to me and said, you know, why are you crying? And I explained. And I can't remember really what she said to me, because I think I was so upset. But basically, it was a very negative kind of demeaning, you know, we'll just get on with it and write something. And it really struck me at that time, because I think, you know, when you're a young kid, your own experience is your knowledge of the world. I had just assumed that every kid really had been adopted like I had. (laughs) And like it was a major revelation to me to find out that people were actually born in a family and stayed in that family. And so for me, I think how that's affected me going forward, not that particular incident, but that feeling that somehow I am a little bit different. And I mentioned it earlier that I'm on my own. So it's led to me become, you know, in some ways quite fiercely independent. And I've had to be really mindful about that, about trying to sort of do things just on my own and not relying on other people to be helpful or participate on a team. I wouldn't say that I haven't been the kind of leader that's not been willing to share the work, but it's really been a lifelong sense, you know, that, you know, this is my ultimate responsibility and I have to carry this out myself. So that was one. And of course, you know, there are layers of of racism in that story as well. And of course, Mm -hmm. there were many times uh, in my elementary and my high school, once, you know, I am a a visible Indigenous person, I, I look Indigenous. So, you know, a lot of the kids in my schools, the, the First Nations kids were bullied uh, by the other children. And of course, I'm an Indigenous child, but I live with a, a non-Indigenous family. And there were actually buses, you know, that took people back to the kids back to the reserve and buses that took us back to the sort of, you know, white neighborhoods. So that feeling that I always was on the wrong bus has been has been a, a thread running through my life, you know, that somehow I don't belong where I am or I'm not completely comfortable where I am, uh, constantly sort of feeling that things aren't quite real in a way and having to really work hard to sort of ground myself. And I think it's maturity that you realize, you know, your experience is your 
is your lived experience. And that's important, no matter how it kind of worked out. Um, and relying on that lived experience to contribute to, in this case, your leadership skills. Do you think that that experience of feeling like you're on the wrong bus and just wondering where you were in this, it's sort of in the divide between cultures. Do you think that you also learned some bridging skills as a result? Or was the effect of the constant racism overwhelming that? No, I would agree that definitely bridging skills were part of it. Otherwise, I think I wouldn't have, you know, succeeded or have gone as far in my career as I have. I mean, I think I have my own personal characteristics that can smooth over difficult conversations that need to be had. I mean, the last year or so has been you know, really a challenge, I think, for Canada as a country in coming to terms with racism, racism of all kinds. You know, it was in the United States, we looked at the murder of George Floyd. And in Canada here, we had the death of Joyce Echaquan in that hospital in Quebec last summer. You know, and then now during COVID, we hear about all the anti-Asian racism. And so, you know, Canada for once is having to have a really difficult look at itself it's about time yeah, like really canada's just but what is there any racism here like are we like isn't that like in the past in, in have we ever even experienced racism it's just so whitewashed <laughs> yeah i mean i hear that all the time examples of it where you know certain leaders like the quebec premier refuses to acknowledge that systemic racism exists whereas here in british columbia you know we just had the in plain sight report that clearly stated that systemic racism is widespread throughout BC's healthcare system. It's everywhere. Yeah. And in all sorts of system, but that's really the starting point you need to be at, right? You can't start tackling something if you don't acknowledge that it's a problem to begin with. Well, as soon as you name it, you have, you become responsible to do something. That's why it's so easy for people to just deny it because they know if they name it, they move sides. They move into the, I'm going to be part of the solution side. (laughs) Yeah. And so for myself, I think, you know, now that I'm definitely participating in leadership roles in anti-racism, including at, at my organization and all of that lived experience that I have, you know, feeds into, you know, my knowledge, but also my credibility with people. And it allows me to be able to have those difficult conversations with people, but I can do it in a way that, you know, isn't necessarily combative or, you know, verbally aggressive. Um, And that's probably some of my skills as a psychiatrist too, right? I've, you know, spent 20 years working with patients and, you know, not all of them were really easy to work with. So, well, being combative and aggressive with others, even if what they're trying to purport is damaging, it doesn't help because people just react with trying to protect themselves. And so then they close down. And I'm just guessing, but I think you probably had that skill of being able to speak with people in ways that would open them up. And the psychiatry just honed it further. Yeah, I think to a certain extent, I mean, one of the reasons that I was drawn to psychiatry as a specialty, because my background is not at all in, in sort of that area. My, my undergraduate uh, degree is in kinesiology, and I have a master's in biomechanics. So there's a real, there's a real jump there from, you no, know, kind well, of. Well, not if you, take, if, if you take it from the holistic perspective, there isn't a jump. 
No, but one of the things I think that drew me to psychiatry was not just that there was an incredible need for someone to be working with Indigenous people in the area of mental health and wellness, but was just that I love that idea that in psychiatry, you have to use your in you know your personal skills in order to develop trust and build a rapport with a patient. Uh, we can't run patients through a CT scanner and get a printout of how suicidal they are. Mm. They will only tell you how distressed they are if they trust you that they're in a safe space and they can disclose how they're actually really feeling. And so I think that part was easy for me um, mm-hmm. compared to some of the other people that I trained with. Mm-hmm. Being able to put people at ease. But for sure, when I started out my career, when I was finished my training and, and working in different projects involving First Nations people, there was probably a period of a couple of years where I was sort of that angry activist, you know, type. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, I had to learn over time that, as you said, that that isn't necessarily the most productive way to engage with people. Well, how do you learn if you haven't had some extremes? I think those extremes allow you to find the happy medium. It's part of being young too, but let me get back to your story. So that was a really poignant memory of when you were six years old. Is there something in your adolescence or early adulthood that is also an incident that you think was very formative for you? Well, there was one particular incident. When I was in high school, I was uh, in late elementary school. I was a competitive track and field athlete. And that taught me a lot about, you know, persistence and determination and discipline. Uh, and when I was in, I think it was the fall of my grade, the start of my grade 13 year, that was back when we had grade 13. Uh, I was actually involved as a pedestrian and uh, I was in a hit and run sort of situation. I was hit by a truck and was actually run over. I actually hmm. went down in front of the truck was knocked down and then the truck drove over me although I went kind of down the middle Mm. I didn't have anything physically run over by the wheels but I was pretty seriously injured and so there were a lot of different emotions around that right I was used to being an elite athlete and for the first few weeks you know I couldn't even sit up and I also realized that you know, being a competitor, being an elite athlete, you have to be pretty self-centered in a way, like not a negative way, but, you know, it all focuses around you, like your training schedule, your sleep schedule, your what you eat, all those types of things. And after my accident, it was the first time I really realized my mortality, right? Hmm. Um, one of the first things I remember when I, you know, the ambulance came and I was brought to the emergency department and they were cutting my clothes off me and there was a whole bunch of stuff going on that I don't really remember. But I do remember a nurse's face kind of, you know, floated down in front of mine and she looked at me and she said, oh, my God, you're so lucky to be alive. And I it, it really freaked me out, to be honest, because, you know, I was 18. And, you know, at 18, you think you're going to live forever, and you can do anything. So that was a pretty um, dramatic event, actually. Wow. Um, Wow. But, but I think what it did for me, you know, aside from, you know, healing from the physical injuries that I had was this, I know, it sounds so simple now, but realizing that, there was more to the world than being 
kind of in my own little world of being like a competitive runner, right? I started to think, wow, like, have I ever done anything nice for anybody lately? It's all about me in a way. And I'm, I'm probably characterizing it a little bit off, but it, it made me focus on, on the world and other people and realizing that I probably should do something that was a little bit more helpful or contributing to, to other people rather than just being focused solely on myself and, and my goal, which was, you know, obviously I was, I wanted to get to the Olympics, but that didn't happen. That's really interesting because you had to develop that discipline, which you've been using all throughout your life to be an athlete. And then that experience with your own mortality and decision to dedicate yourself to helping other people certainly has been evident in all of your life's work. So a list of your accomplishments is huge. We're going to put the whole bio into <laughs> the whole the whole bio into the show notes because it's really, really impressive. And so it's almost like the juxtaposition between those two things that brought out maybe the best in you. Yeah, I mean, I like to think so. You know, I think obviously being used to, you know, the kind of training that I was doing has definitely been beneficial to me in, you know, as an adult or even just, you know, doing my education, getting through medical school, getting through residency. I mean, there's a very, you know, sort of stolid, stubborn side to my personality that, (laughs) you know, that I persist no matter what. And as, you know, sometimes tasks seem ahead of me seem almost insurmountable, but it's just that doggedness that you learn Uh, as an athlete to kind of push through that and achieve whatever it is that you you have in mind. So that has always, I think, served me really well. Would you say that you were born with it, that that's part of your temperament and that it it just became honed or, you know, like that's where you're saying being doggedly determined. Do you think that's part of temperament or and personality or what? Where would that come? I think it's probably more temperament. And it kind of does flow back to, you know, my early years as being adopted, that sort of, you know, I'm on my own, I have to survive, I have to get through this. It's that, you know, that self-reliant determination that no matter what, I'm going to get through that. You know, I've experienced a lot of adversity in my life. And that's the one thing that has always stood me well is that, you know, my partner would probably call it stubbornness, but um, just that determination to persist. Yeah, I think that's the big part of who I am, my temperament. Mm-hmm. But what would you say you've added on personality wise over time? Well, I think I've had to learn, as I, I mentioned, maybe a bit earlier, like, you know, how to really be a team member. And one of the things I learned, you know, really grateful, I mean, learned so many things at McMaster University when I went to medical school, but, you know, really how to be a team member that you're not the only one that needs to lead the team all the time. You know, that leadership can kind of be shared around and you can appreciate other people's experiences and use their skills and rely on them. So I learned that at McMaster for sure. And, you know, I think I have a pretty good sense of humor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it sounds like a trivial thing, but that makes a big difference when you're working in challenging situations. It's not trivial um, at all. It's really important. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it's funny to say as a psychiatrist that, you know, I, I used my sense of humor with my patients, but I really did. Not, you know, in an inappropriate way, but you know, patients appreciate that, you know, I heard it repeatedly when I was 
in my clinical years from patients that they were like, you know, you are the least likely doctor seeming person I've ever met. <laughs> and I take that as a compliment. It wasn't that I wasn't professional. I have never bought into that sort of hierarchical culture of medicine that somehow just because you're a physician that makes you better than anybody else. And that's something that I think I have really valued over my career. Yeah, that humility. And then also the sense of humor is really important because it also helps people to feel grounded and to not sink into the trauma. I really think that more laughter is needed. There's even, you know, laughing yoga. Some I know a nurse actually who told me that she decided to take up laughing yoga and that that really made a difference in the way that she approached her job. And I said, well, what do you do in laughing yoga? You just sit around and laugh. And she said, yep, that's it. <laughs> sit around and laugh. And I said, hard for me to imagine doing that for a half an hour. And she said, it's really freeing. It's amazing how much we don't laugh. We've got a lot of pent up laughter inside of us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if I could do that either, but I do know that I do like to laugh a lot. We do it in our work too. Like, I think that's another Indigenous strength that, you know, we try to focus on actually in, in our work here is that all the things that make someone resilient, and that includes having a sense of humor. It sure does. Let me ask you about, you were born into a group, taken away from that group, and then you're in a Dutch family. And then that was another cultural experience. And then you're also in the Thunder Bay community, which is a cultural experience in itself, right? Everybody, every every place we live in, every group that's around us is part of our, our cultural experience. So from those groups that you were born into, what would you say has influenced you most? I would say, you know, for me, it's been a lifelong journey thinking about working on, if you can believe it, like my identity as an mm -hmm. Indigenous person. Even when I was growing up in my adoptive family, I was always exposed to Indigenous people and culture. My Dutch father, actually, some of his best friends lived on the Fort William Reserve, and we would drive up there and he would buy a whole bunch of fish um, from the people who fished up there. And I always found it really curious, you know, it's like, why do I, you know, you have these friends that, that are First Nations, and yet you don't acknowledge, you know, explicitly that I'm a First Nations child. Like, hmm. it became obvious to me very early on that I was First Nations, but it was something for quite a while that we couldn't really speak about. My parents weren't great talkers. It wasn't actually until I finished medical school that my parents started asking me, you know, about my work because I'd be like, oh, I'm going to go, you know, work in this reserve community. And they're like, oh, that's great. <laughs> like, you know, just sort of coming around to it and sort of witnessing my journey. So that community, even though I was taken from it and grew up on the periphery of it, that's been the most solid piece uh, that I have established is that sense of identity. Because I think as a 60 scoop survivor, I've heard this from other survivors that, you know, you feel like you don't, you kind of walk in both worlds and you don't belong in either. Mm -hmm. And that's definitely part of it. But it's that constant striving to belong, but realizing ultimately that I've always belonged to that community. But my experience was one of, you know, an attempt to assimilate and to colonize me. Mm -hmm. But I have, even when I didn't know that I was resisting, I was resisting. 
Mm-hmm. It's kind of an interesting mix because the next question is from the groups that you have chosen to belong to, what has most influenced you, but you chose to belong to the community that you were taken from. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in some ways, that's not always the easiest journey either, right? No. Thunder Bay was interesting because, you know, there is a pretty significant First Nations population. So you either fit in, you know, visually or you don't. When I moved to, say, Waterloo to go to university or when I lived in downtown Toronto, you know, the Toronto, Toronto, for example, is so diverse in terms of, you know, the people who come from all over the world to live there that it, it's kind of easy to blend in, right? Mm-hmm. Even though when I'm with First Nations people, I, I visibly look like a First Nations person. In downtown Toronto, you know, I had people going, are you Polynesian or, you know, yeah. like any number of identities would probably fit with me. And I've experienced that traveling internationally as well. But to choose consciously to reconnect and belong to, you know, a group of people who are actively experiencing racism and discrimination was natural for me to do that, despite the, the disadvantages or the negative experiences that I've had over the course of my career because I am a First Nations woman. That choice to be authentically you and to embrace the gifts of culture and experience and to willingly embrace the pain, even to a greater degree than what you'd already experienced, I think it's essential for, for people who have never been removed from their culture, their family and their surroundings. They don't have an idea how significant that is to be yeah. yourself and to feel that you belong somewhere. And, you know, to be completely honest, like there are instances of, you know, lateral violence from within the Indigenous community. You know, yep. I know I have some colleagues who, you know, had the advantage of, you know, and the way that I say it doesn't sound like it, but had the advantage of growing up on reserve with their families, speak their language, know their culture and their ceremonies, almost talk about people who uh, didn't have that experience, either by being adopted or growing up in an urban setting and sort of looking down on us, you mm-hmm. know, that, you know, that we don't speak our language. Well, there are very good reasons why I don't speak my language. And of course, it's on me that I haven't, you know, in my adulthood, actively learned my language and I can still do that but there is a lot of lateral violence that I think is important to also recognize that you know we do sometimes the most harm to each other as well as experiencing it from others yeah I would say that's a characteristic of oppression and colonization where people oppress themselves worse than the ones who are from the outside. And this becomes a sort of a pecking order. You see that in every group too. You also see that in immigrant groups where people who've been here 20 years look down at the people who are fresh off the boat. And all of that, there's some sort of a desire for people to achieve status by looking down at others, but it never really achieves status. It just makes us all miserable. (laughs) The status doesn't come from making others smaller, but that's something we all have to learn. Yeah. So a couple more questions. One is that, and I'm, you've been speaking about it all along, so it might be a little bit of a moot question, but I'm sure there were times that just your, your six-year-old experience with the birth announcement is a great example, but there are times when you became aware that 
what you had experienced in your own immediate surroundings became your culture. And that when you went somewhere else, that that wasn't the way other people acted. And you felt that you had kind of a disconnect thinking, oh, well, what I thought was normal is not normal for everyone. Can you think of a time when that was happening for you? I think the best example, and I've already talked on it about it a little bit, is, you know, my experience of becoming and being a physician, uh, entering into the culture of medicine, you know, which maybe is evolving, I hope. But, you know, just that sheer hierarchical nature that uh, some, you know, there are some physicians who really believe that that's who they are. And just because of their title, they deserve to be appreciated and applauded and all that kind of stuff. And I've never viewed it that way. You know, being a physician is what I do. It's not necessarily who I am. I might cling to the idea that I'm a physician in the sense only that working with First Nations youth or Indigenous youth, that I can be an example to them that, yes, you can do this too. It's not impossible. There are parts of the culture of medicine that I don't really enjoy and really felt like out of my element when I was, especially in the midst of my training and in my early career before I, you know, felt confident enough to, you know, kind of express my own power mm-hmm. and just say, I'm, I'm going to practice the way that I'm practicing and I'm not going to feel compelled to behave in a certain way just because that's how it's always been done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great mm-hmm. answer to that. Uh, so what's the best way to work with you? What brings out the best in you when you're working with other people? I think the best way is, I think, identifying a challenge or, you know, a goal that has to be achieved and letting me know that, you know, we are all kind of, we're all in this together, uh, to use a well-worn phrase over the past mm-hmm. year and a half, mm-hmm. and, and that I have that support. You know, that's the difficult part for me. Like now I have a team that I work with and so many very capable people on that team that lift me up. And it's just my own growth that I need to develop ease in that situation that, you know, I can actually rely on other people and it's going to get done and everybody contributes. And, you know, I think the bottom line is I'm still learning myself, you know, even at this late stage, I'm always open to learning and how to be a better leader, how to be a better team member, um, and just generally how to, yeah, how to be, how to continue to be more authentic uh, and more comfortable in my own shoes. Mm, That's a lovely answer. Anything else you'd like to say before we end the interview? I guess the only thing I want to say is, you know, the other sort of guiding teaching that I use in my life is the seven generations. Mm -hmm. Uh, And for people who don't know it, just briefly, uh, you know, the seven generations teaching tells us that, you know, what we accomplish in our lifetimes the effects of that will be felt forward like waves until seven generations into the future. So I will never know the full impact of, you know, all of the work that I've tried to do over the, over the years. Uh, But at least I know that, you know, my ancestors are what brought me here to my life and my career. And I hope to do the same for the generations to come. 
Mm, yes, and you are, in fact, because the healing that we do heals both the past and the future generations. Thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate the generosity of the gift of your time and your authentic and thoughtful reflection. And I would just like to wish you all the best in your role in British Columbia and working with First Nations peoples. And I'm looking forward to learning about more about what you learn and what you come up with. Thanks, Marie. It was really nice talking with you. I really enjoyed my interview with Dr. Nell Wyman, the Acting Deputy Medical Officer for the First Nations Health Authority in British Columbia. Her story of being one of the 60s Scoop Indigenous children adopted into a Dutch family and subsequently becoming Canada's first female Indigenous psychiatrist is an amazing journey of courage, determination and service to humanity. I was particularly moved by her experiences of being asked to write her birth announcement in grade one and of grappling with her own mortality after being hit and run over by a truck at the height of her athletic prowess. A deeply reflective person who knows how to bring both meaning and laughter to difficult contexts and hard conversations. Dr. Wyman offered us new insights into how to overcome difficulties and how to continue our own journeys of finding our authentic selves and learning to belong. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Culture and Leadership Connections podcast. And may culture and leadership connections continue to guide and inspire your day. This podcast would not be possible without the expertise of our Culture and Leadership Connections production team. A big thank you and shout out to Mike Kurlander for audio production and editing. To Malvika Kathpal for the show notes. Bernadette Guadiz for online web and social media management and promotions. Celine Bayogo for design. And Kirsten Hoyer for website and branding. Thank you so much. Are you a big Culture and Leadership Connections podcast fan? Our Patreon platform is the most versatile way to hear podcast episodes, cross-cutting theme discussions, and watch VIP podcast guest videos. You can download the app to your phone and listen wherever you are. Check out the subscription levels for perks that appeal to you. Feel good about helping us cover podcast production costs while enhancing your listening experience at the same time. Go to patreon.com slash culture and leadership connections. That's spelled P-A-T reon.com slash culture and leadership connections.